Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Certified Forgotten, the horror film podcast that brings you movies with 10 or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. That's our limit. It might be if you haven't listened to an episode in a couple of weeks, that's a new limit. We used to do five. Unfortunately, Rotten Tomatoes has caught up with us, so we had to expand that a little bit. And who knows, maybe in a year we'll have to expand it again. Damn them for bringing all their historical archived interviews and and, and reviews up onto the website. Really making life hard for the little guy, the little podcasters out here. I am one half of your Matt hosts. As always, I'm Matt Monagle. I am here to bring you undiscovered horror. And my partner in crime, Matt Donato, is taking a break from award season, festival season, shop talk, all kinds of crazy stuff. You're a man. You're 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 busy. You're busy, Donato. I am busy. Yes. But, uh, you know, it's a good busy. It's a happy busy. We can't really complain about things like South by Southwest and Critics Choice. These are these are happy, happy little uh, work adventures we go on so it's all positive oscars were last night shit happened i beat perry in our uh pick pick em little uh bet we had going so it's coming up to not pretty pretty uh pretty across the board there i like it and i feel like today is going to be a return to classic form uh, for the movie that we're talking about. This is vintage Donato, vintage film festival, low budge, indie horror. This is like, this is if if you're still kind of getting your feet back under you after a little bit of travel and festivities, this is going to be a good grounding experience, I think. Uh, well, I mean, this is actually a film I've wanted to get on the podcast and it didn't fit our five review criteria. So this is, we're, we're already just really jumping right back into the fact mm. that now that we've made it the 10 reviews, the world has just been like blown open. Like we have so many more movies we can pick from. And these movies that like the monster project means so much to me because it was one of those first little indies that like put me on to the fact that, Hey, you can do huge things with $200,000. It's just that nobody's paying attention, which I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about. So yeah, save, uh, it, save it for the show, man. What are you doing? You're giving away gold here in the, in the cold open. Listen, I, my, my other joke was the way you saying, uh, as always, I'm Matt Monogle, and I was going to be like, wait, it'd be weird if you were Matt Donato this episode. But like, yeah, I brought some real facts this time. All right. I appreciate that. Well, here to bring you this movie and gift you with the opportunity to talk about it, we've got a very special guest. Uh, Donato, introductions, please, if you will. Absolutely. I am very happy to welcome Devon Taylor that you know from the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club podcast. And uh, yeah, I'm just really happy to have Devon here and finally bring in the Monster Project to us. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I am super excited. It was one of those things that I just, I had the hardest time finding one that was under five when you originally invited me. And then it it was literally months. And then once I listened, I finally uh, heard an episode where it was like, oh, we're doing 10 now. And I was like, okay, I got it now. <laughs> so like, I'm, I'm locked and loaded. Yeah, I think you even mentioned the Monster Project like the first time too. You yeah, were just like, yeah, oh, like the Monster Project is right there. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, it is right there. And I really want to talk about it. God damn it. Like we need to fix this. <laughs> I think it was like six or seven reviews. So like it was, it was, yeah, it was right there on the cusp. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate because sometimes in, in the pre days, the, you know, the before times where we used to do five, Donato would come in and he'd be like, what if I just delisted my review, right? Like what if I just went on a Rotten Tomatoes? I'm one of the six. What if I just took my review down? <laughs> then we're at five and we're good to go. I was like, I don't think that's a way to, to run a freelance career or a business, bud. I mean, though that was a uh, mutant blast actually mutant blast. When we covered it, we said the rule was it fit for five because I was the sixth review. And I was just like, you know what? We need to cover it. Take my review off. Just ignore it. That's fair enough. Well, Devon, I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Um, and in when we were talking a little bit before, you were saying it's been a while since you've had to kind of do like the history of you and your history with the genre. So 
I'm going to put you right on the spot, right? For starters, the first question we always ask our guests is their earliest memories of the horror genre, their earliest memories of a film, a book, some kind of scary media that they took in and kind of what that experience was like. So you got to flash all the way back right from the get go. Yeah. So, I mean, I got, I got in pretty early. Like, I mean, I started watching horror movies when I was like seven. Like, I think that was whenever I was first shown Nightmare on Elm Street. And, but, but before that though, I do remember whenever I, I guess I, cause this movie came out in 1999. So I would have been like four or five at the time of this memory. Um, I remember we had a family night and they had rented uh, the house on Haunted Hill remake. And they were watching that. And it was like, I remember it was like super late at night and like, and it, they thought I was sleeping. And then, so I like, you know, was kind of watching. I remember like seeing something. I mean, I was just terrified. Like I, it was just like, you know, like when you just wake up and, a, and something scary is already happening and you're like out of it. So it was like, Oh my God, what is going on? And I remember my uncle gave me a pair of fake vampire teeth. Those like little plastic ones. And then he was like, here, he was like, here, put these in. He was like, now you're going to be scarier than anything that's on the TV. And then like, and I, I remember something about that. Um, Cause my uncle, my uncle and my uh, mom were the two that like kind of led me down the, the spooky paths. So um, I, I do always remember that like little memory about um, whenever, whenever I then wasn't as afraid to like watch horror movies, I would kind of approach it with that thing, like of kind of like, you know, real life or, you know, is going to be scarier than anything that I'm going to see on this TV. Mm. And that's kind of what kind of sparked my interest to be able to explore those fears in a, in a safe manner, I think. Well, also you set yourself up for success starting with a Dark Castle Entertainment remake, because mm-hmm. as we all know, we are, I at least myself, I'm a huge appreciator of the 13 ghosts and the uh, House on Haunted Hill remake. So you were just you set up for success right there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I definitely um, was uh, introduced in, in a good way. I mean, I'm a big thir- 13 teen ghost fan. Um, I have I think that's like the longest uh, podcast episode on Blade Blunts, actually, is the 13 ghost episode. <laughs> well, let me ask you then, because, you know, we, we talk to a lot of people um, on this podcast who probably when we talk about their childhood and horror, that was probably like late eighties, early nineties. So they're kind of their formative experiences were like now considered kind of the, the golden era of the genre, right? Like late eighties horror, mm-hmm. Pete John Carpenter, things of that nature. When we talk about late nineties, early two thousands horror, we tend to talk about that as sort of a dead period within the genre. Mm-hmm. The kind of, it was a bridging this period of like nineties, early nineties innovation to like the, the deluge of festivals and VOD films that would come in the later two thousands. So how did it feel to kind of be developing as a horror fan, finding you're like, Ooh, I've got these, I've got these plastic teeth. I think I can do the genre finding that in an era where like a lot of people, when you hear conversations about it, are like, man, that was like the worst period of horror. Did you feel that at the time? Or did you find oh, a bunch of stuff you were rediscovering? A little bit because so two factors into that, that kind of affected things were so my, my mom, she was the horror movie person. We'd, we'd watch horror movies together, but it was only when dad was at work because my dad absolutely hates horror movies. Like he mm. thinks they are the scum of the earth. He trashes every single one of them. We get, we've literally gotten into arguments now because like of how much he hates it, and like doesn't give certain movies a chance. So it was like I had a limited window when we could watch them. And then I have, I have a lot of siblings. I've, I had three younger sisters. And so when we go to the video store, we were only allotted a certain selection, you know, and 
since there were the three girls, uh, my horror movies were usually outvoted. So I didn't even right. get to like rent the newer ones. So like my horror education was still going pretty much. It was going to my uncle's, you know, VHS DVD stack and then kind of going through his movies and going through there. So like I did still kind of start with like a lot of the stuff in the eighties and nineties. Um, especially like 90 stuff really appealed to me a little bit more because it was a little bit more weird and out there i always describe 90s horror as like the cocaine era where it was just like mm-hmm. what can we do right now all right first idea do it so it's like you know those movies um definitely kind of stood out to me as well but so i, I did still kind of have more of a formal education i suppose as as far as like chronological goes but because i wasn't really hearing about a lot of the newer stuff or like wasn't getting to see the newer stuff so it wasn't until like kind of the early um 2010s whenever I um started writing and I had a podcast like back in like 2013 and once I started doing that stuff that's whenever I kind of got into the loop and then so really the the early 2000s like the aughts were kind of like a uh a blind spot period for me because like I just Mm. wasn't able to see a lot of the stuff coming out that time I feel like that era like for everyone was kind of a blind spot in a way though even if you were living through it like I, I didn't really engage that much with horror at that time. And like now looking back on it, it's all these movies I feel like I'm catching up on and like that I quote unquote missed. But like, again, that's kind of where the podcast came from. All these movies that like critics kind of shit on in the early 2000s and all the movies that like I'll still be forever mad at all the uh, horror remakes from the early 2000s that have like 20 percent, 30 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. And you just look back going like, did critics just really hate horror that much at the time? Like, yeah, it was just it was a really weird time. They did. It was like a, it did seem just like a shit fest on horror movies. Like every time I heard of a new horror movie coming out, it was just everybody talked about mm-hmm. how bad it was or like it just immediately shit on it. I still don't forgive a friend on my birthday. Um, but the choices were between seeing, um, I wanted to see Dead Silence and he wanted to see um x-men the the last stand which don't get me wrong i still love x-men 3 but then like i didn't see dead silence until like four years later and then i was like what this movie rips like what the hell yeah and i feel like part of that too is um you know i was thinking about this with regards to the the zombie genre and i don't remember why the other day but there was some zombie movie that came out i was watching a trailer for something and i realized that we don't actually know what zombie movies are are good and by the sense that we don't know what zombie movies are good i mean like the canon for this decade of zombie films has not been written. So in 20 years, when the next generation of critics is coming, they're going to be like, here are the really good zombie movies from the 2010s and 2020s. Here are the bad ones. And we're going to be like, wait, wait, wait. No, we lived through that. Nobody watched that. That movie was terrible. Or like, no, that movie was great. Why is it on the other thing? So there's an element of that, I think, you know, backward looking canon building that is still just now really taking place for the 2000s. It's only been the last few years, I think the movies like Dead Silence have kind of got to the point where people are like, all right, no, time out. We're going to reclaim the reputation of this movie. It's good. And now it's considered part of like the good 2000s films. It wasn't that way for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I just watched Cherry Falls last night and I swear if that came out now, people would lose Mm -hmm. their shit for that movie. Like, oh my God, it's so good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean like Dead Silence too. It's It's a funny one to bring up because when I wrote, um, like one of the first big swings I took at Slash Film when I started writing there was writing an in defense of Dead Silence. And it was for like, I, I forget what year anniversary, but, you know, it was like one of the kind of like earlier pieces out there to be like, yo, no, this movie is actually very good. And you're all like kind of 
sleeping on it. And then like Lee went out like tweets at me. He's like, I'm really glad you like it because boy, like I hated making that movie. <laughs> like, like even like the <laughs> filmmakers kind of have like this really dark kind of reaction to it because like, I'm sure of course, as much as like Wenell and uh, James Wan put everything into it. And like, I'm sure they love it on some kind of level. Like, I just remember when Al like tweeting back and forth, just being like, no, like seriously, totally. I'm glad you like it. Just like, I never want to like go back to that period again because it was so hated and he was so sour on the experience because of the reception. Like, again, I feel like there were a lot of filmmakers that got caught in that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure like, you know, Lee Wynnell getting out of it and making everything he's made since is like a tremendous thing. But there's so many filmmakers I wonder who were met with bad reception in like that time mm-hmm. of horror and just kind of like gave it up maybe. Yeah. Who do we lose? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, Devon, you were talking about um, starting a podcast in, in 2013-ish. Um, talk a little bit about kind of the, I guess, the, the the middle age, right? High school, college age when you were connecting to horror. Was that something you were kind of pursuing? Were you like, I want to make movies. I want to write about movies. I want to talk about movies. Yeah, it, it, was, a, it was a progression because, yeah, one, like that was back in that was when I still had to explain to people what a podcast was, you know, mm. like podcasts that hadn't made that like big boom back. And I sometimes think back to, I'm like, man, if I would just kept that show going, like I'd be on like <laughs> episode like 400 by now. Um, you would be famous just because you were the one of the oldest people doing it at that point. Exactly. I'd be the Adam Carolla of horror yep. podcasts. Um, <laughs> but, but my I'm first sorry. one, I, my, my first one actually wasn't a horror podcast. It was like an all around, just like movie centric. Cause at the time I wasn't the, the horror guy yet. Like I'd always mm-hmm. loved horror movies, but it was around after that time. Cause uh, I went to college for art education and I went for two years and then I had to drop out for various circumstances. And uh, following that year, I had like just a catastrophic year. I had to drop out of college. Then like a few months later had a house fire. My whole DVD collection was stolen so like mm. it, it was like a it was just a it was a just a whirlwind of a year, and that's at the time. And then I had dropped out, and I was like, all right, so like, what am I gonna do for like my career now? Like, I thought this is what I was gonna do, and it was still around that time when you know they told you in school that like if you want to be an adult, you gotta go to college and you know do all the things. So I, I had that worry, but then it was once I started. Um, finding YouTube channels and like uh, that were doing movie reviews and doing these after show type things. Um, that's whenever I was like, Oh, so there is like opportunities to be able to like loop in something. I love movies that also like, Oh, I don't necessarily need to like get a degree and like have all this training to do, you know? Um, and so I started doing YouTube stuff around that time as well. Didn't really stick with it, but, and then, um, and then that's whenever I started writing for a few websites and then those websites, um, I would be the only one that wanted to do the horror movies. So then I became just like kind of the horror guy. And then, the, and then my, my film watching just like kind of zoned into that as well. Cause I was so obsessed with, um, uh, around that time that was when, uh, I saw it follows and that I always mm-hmm. cite that as the movie that kind of switched something in my brain about the horror genre like on like what its possibilities were from a storytelling perspective um for an experience as well just all the versatility and and at that time I had been writing for a little bit and then I was like you know what I was like writing about movies is cool but like I think I want to like make them myself so that's why I started learning um I started teaching myself like videography and how to write scripts and editing and stuff like that and I've been just kind of self-taught in that ever since and 
Um, and then Boy Blunt Cinema Club came because I finally was like, I want a horror-centric podcast for me as my new identity as horror guy. Mm-hmm. What um, what do you find? Because you know the, I feel like, and and I I don't have any interest in creating, so I'm always sort of interested when I talk to people that do, I feel like this is a really good time to be sort of self-taught, right? The, the barriers to entry, to be able to, to go out and make stuff, put together a reel, put together some shorts, things of that nature. It's easier now than it's ever been. Is mm-hmm. that sort of a, a narrative that Hollywood sells you that I'm buying into, or is that something you've experienced that those doors are more open? Um, no, I mean, I think it's, uh, the, the times have definitely shifted in a way to, yeah, it is kind of the best time to be a self-made self-taught type of person. Um, as far as, you know, going against like, you know, the, the idea that like, okay, you, if this is the one path that you take to get to here, you know, that you go to film school, you do all these things. And, um, and I mean, I feel uh, since I've moved to LA about three and a half years ago, like I moved out here with a lot of people that I would have graduated college with if I was stayed in and they were like, um, most of them are actors and such. And, you know, they're out here with me doing the exact same stuff I'm doing. They have their degrees. I don't. And I mean, I'm almost doing some more of, you know, getting the experience of like the hands-on stuff of, you know, working on sets and like things like that. So it's like Mm -hmm. it, it, more was just like a confirmation. Like I kind of had that idea before moving out here. Like, cause I, I thought that, you know, four or five years ago that I was like, this is a really good time to be, um, to be self-taught and to be able to have an opportunity. And, uh, I do still feel that way confirmed, you know, years later. That's great. Yeah. I mean, like the big filmmakers and stuff like that are starting to do things that are affirming that and, you know, Soderbergh shooting on iPhones and all these like, Mm -hmm. you know, filmmakers proving that like, listen, the technology is out there and like, yes, of course, you're still going to get something different from a Soderbergh iPhone movie like Unsane. He still has a tremendous studio behind him and a budget and all that stuff. But like, you know, just like showcasing that the tool is there and, you know, the iPhone is just the way they can capture video now and the way they can capture like all these different kind of cinematography moves is like, it's kind of bonkers. It is. It's, to, it's like to look yeah. at it, to look at it from an outsider perspective. And again, I'm, I'm like monogal. I have no desire like to create myself. I just like the criticism side of things. But like, I don't know if I did want to. It's just like that I'm holding a device right now that could possibly get it done. I'm like, geez, that's <laughs> kind of weird times. Yeah. I mean, and it's wild, especially, you know, when you're trying to do like filmmaking and horror, you know, because horror has always been that, you know low budget kind of resourceful you know unorthodox way of filming you know for most of its history that it lends its well lends itself super you know well to the way that things are kind of being made today yeah and i i always like to i mean not to 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 be the old guy in the room uh, on tiktok but i will say that like some of the best short form storytelling horror storytelling that i see today is coming out of tiktok it's coming out from teenagers and 20 somethings that are just like using their phone and teaching themselves how to edit together different scenes. Right. And like Mm -hmm. learning how to put in a jump scare or learning how to create this really crazy sense of existential dread out of like a good story that they're trying to tell. And it's just, you know, I, if, if I were a Hollywood producer, all I would do is basically be like, go follow the TikTok, the horror hashtag on TikTok and send me a list of the best stuff you see every single day and you know we'll we'll schedule lunch or something or have a zoom call with with the people that are those creators because yeah like even even the youtube generation and even you know people that were were doing stuff 10 years ago i feel like 
I've seen so many more people that I want. I wish I could green light projects based on things I see on TikTok because it's just such a dynamic platform for storyteller. Yeah. And, and again, it's, it's, you know, horror has always been that way, you know? So now that it's always been that way and like, think of like, you know, the way that people were able to stretch dollars then, and then think of the way they can stretch dollars now, like the, the possibilities are just like, it's, it's mind boggling, but it's exciting. Mm -hmm. Now you talked a bit about, um, bloody bunts cinema club. I want to, uh, for those that aren't familiar with it, I want to kind of have you talk a little bit more about, um, kind of the impetus for that and the, the, the way that you approach film on that podcast and kind of, you know, there's a lot of horror podcasts out there. So kind of what, what makes, what is the thing that, that, um, makes yours distinct and special and gets you excited about doing it day in and day out? Yeah. So the, the podcast, I did start it in the you know early months of when we were in lockdown and, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I'd always been wanting to do, it and I'd done the po uh, a podcast before. So it's like, wasn't a stretch or anything, but as far as what I wanted to bring to it, that was different is, um, we basically, uh, like to like analyze subgenres and franchises and, and we kind of alternate uh, month by month on what we do. And because, um, me as somebody that one is an aspiring filmmaker, um, and I like to look at the way that things are kind of made up and like, you know, seeing like, you know, what makes certain things work, what makes them not work. Um, so, and, and I love patterns. Like that's not, like, that's mm -hmm. just something <clears throat> about me in general. I just really love patterns. So I love, you know, taking a look at something like, you know, say specifically like vampire movies or something like, okay, what makes specifically a vampire movie successful? And that's kind of the way that we look at it, whether it's a subgenre or a franchise. And, uh, I'm just a, I'm a big stoner. Uh, I, I, mm. I, I may, I smoke weed all day, every day. Um, and I, I feel like it does in a way, it definitely affects the way that I look at movies. Um, maybe I come at it from a different angle than you wouldn't really think of. I'm known to um, make big stretches and reaches on things uh, whenever I'm like kind of analyzing because I like to I'm somebody that like as much as like, yes, whatever is put in front of you um, in the film and like whatever's written, even if it is written out as plain as day, like what the director is trying to tell you. I, I still like to like look at movies and be like, okay, but what does the movie tell me specifically? Like not what mm -hmm. you're wanting to say, if that makes sense. So um, I'm very much a, a, um, you know, once, once art, you know, leaves the, the, the artist, then it's kind of no longer theirs. And um, I, I try to take that literally whenever I analyze things, I'm like, no, this is my movie. So this is what I think is actually going on. <laughs> Well, I think that's important, you know, to criticism in a way, because having all those different voices and having everyone's different interpretation is what keeps things fresh and keeps these new opinions coming out. So it's like, you know, the same movie that's being analyzed uh, week in, week out by so many people, like, you know, if everyone has the same take, it's just obvious, like, it'd be so boring It'd be so boring after a while. So mm -hmm. like, we need that mm -hmm. kind of approach to the sense that you know, we're all allowed to still hold our own opinions and read things in certain ways because I have watched movies myself that like if I didn't watch them after certain elements of my life and like, you know, a decade can pass and a movie can completely alter its meaning. So it's like yeah. it, to always have that like creativity and like that curiosity. I think that's that's very, very important to have like in criticism. Yeah, my favorite films are some of my favorite films are ones that I hated and then I went back and revisited and I was like, I think I was wrong. I think you were good the whole time. And I think I was being kind of stupid. 
Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I'm a big rewatcher. I, I know there's a lot of people that like that don't rewatch movies or like not that often. Like I I love like especially you know being able to find a movie that I can like sit there and watch like you know five times. Like one of my favorite movies, The Neon Demon. I remember the very first time I saw it, I rated it three and a half out of um, five, and had all these different things with it, and like it just like kept kept creeping up every time I'd watch it and I'd pick a little bit more out of it and then a little something else. And I'd be like, Oh, here's a whole completely spin. I never thought of. And just like, kind of, I, I love whenever I can grow to appreciate a movie, like as time goes by. Hmm. Now, Devon, I want to ask one thing you were talking about, um, your approach, um, especially the perspective that marijuana brings to it, which for our listeners that are in California, Hey, for our listeners yeah. in Texas and elsewhere, Ooh, um, just legally. I mean, whatever, travel where you want, <laughs> vacation where you want to travel. Um, you know, talking about the, the author relinquishing kind of interpretation and control to the audience, which I am also a really big fan of. It is something that I feel like is a little, it's, it's, it's led to different conversations now in, in 2022 with the sense of entitlement we sometimes feel for audiences and the way that they mm-hmm. have taken it to say, not only do I get to interpret the decisions that you made previously, I also get to determine the future of the work or future edits or sequels or things of that nature. So I, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about this. I, I think Donato and I are considerably less doom and gloom about the state of audiences and fan culture than a lot of other folks out there. But I'm kind of curious too, how, how you see that, um, especially in, in the horror communities you travel in. Do you feel like audiences are taking care of the stuff they've been gifted with? Or do you think that, that there's, there's a little bit of that, um, my precious approach that they take to to some of these films and some of these properties. It's weird because, because like I said, I do believe in a, that like, you know, the audience like kind of owns at that point, but at the same time, it's, it's, you got to understand that you, you own it with everybody. It's not just like Mm. you own it anymore, you know? And I think that's what gets some of these, um, you know, some of these fandoms that are a little bit more excitable than others. Um, because they kind of they're like yes this is my precious thing but they don't think about it in a you know whole context that you're sharing it with you know millions of other people as well um so it's like it's like yeah i i do think that you know we we do kind of take you know take that as it's being released but at the same time it's like i you gotta still be open to like you know that it's it's that it's malleable like this, that it's, it's Play-Doh, not clay, you know, right. like you can, you can take and still reform it and it still be that thing. You know, it's not hardened. It is funny to hear just like some of the takes of just like you're saying, it has to be communal. It has to be shared, like all yeah. these opinions and stuff like that. But there are the people out there that like they go through all these mental gymnastics to come up with their own thought. And like, you know, they clearly have taken the Play-Doh and molded it to the shape they want. And then when anyone else does that, it's like, yeah, but like you're completely wrong. And it's like, wait, don't you understand the hypocrisy going on here? Exactly. I don't I don't ever want to be like if I am your expert on something, if I am the last word on a movie, God help the movie and, and the cast and the crew, right? Like, I don't want that. I want to be a voice in a conversation. And nothing makes me happier than when I think I know something about a movie and, and somebody changes my mind, right? Like, I'm like, oh, here's what I thought about it. And somebody's like, ah, I don't think you thought it all the way through. My instinct in those situations is not to get defensive, but be like, oh, what did I miss? Let's have coffee. Let's get a drink. Let's talk about it a little bit more. Because, um, you know, part of the reason why I run a podcast is because I'm very, not bad, but I'm much better about thinking when I get to do it with other people that I really rely on that give and take in order to help solidify my own ideas because otherwise 
I just kind of go down a little bit of a dead end on my own. So I love the ability for me to say something. And then the guest says something and I'm like, oh shit, that's right. And then Donato says something. I'm like, oh shit, that's also right. And then I want to respond to that. That's just, it's so much, it's so much more fun. And I don't understand why people in the industry wouldn't want that experience. Oh yeah. Like I I joke around that. I I call myself a a reverse gatekeeper. Like I want everything. (laughs) I want to take everything in. Like everything is acceptable. Like, yes, every, everything is a yes. Like I'm, I'm one of those people, especially like, you know, going into my podcast is like, uh, I, I try to make excuses for like anything that can be a horror movie. Like I'm, I'm that person when that, when people try to argue against like, Oh, it's not a horror movie. I'm like, Oh, but if you look, it definitely could be, if you look close enough, anything can be a horror movie. So like, that's, that's how I try to approach it. It's a horror comedy. That doesn't mean it's horror. Yeah. No, nope, 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 nope. I like it. I'm going to, I'm going to think of you as the yes. And of horror film criticism from here on out. I really like that. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to, what, what is there like, and I feel like that's just my stoner brain too. What would be a reverse gatekeeper? Like what, what's a person that lets people indoors? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Greeter. You're like the Walmart greeter for the hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, I think that's probably the closest parallel I can think of. Just really happy yeah. stoned and welcome. Happy to be here. <laughs> that that's, that's perfect. You're going to check receipts on the way out the door if you're like the Costco greeter, but it's not a bad thing. You just want to make sure the experience lined up with uh, what you were looking for. So that is perfect because the the movie we're talking would definitely be in the in the Walmart bin for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? Thank you for that, because that is probably one of the best segues we've had in a very long time to talk about today's movie. So we're going to take a short little break. And when we come back, Devon has brought us The Monster Project and Donato's excited. We'll be back in just a second. Hello, friends. Thank you for listening to this episode of Certified Forgotten. Uh, This is the time on the show where we like to share a few words from our loyal patrons, and they make us say some things, explain some things, talk about some things that we usually have some fun with. So what do we have this week, Donato? This week, and number one, I didn't check my microphone, so I really hope it's uh, reading correctly. (laughs) So Sounds sounds good to me. Awesome, willy-nilly. Uh, the first is from Christy, who is new to the $10 tier, so this is the first time Christy is putting in for this. But Christy has an easy question. If you could add Paddington to any movie or TV show, which would you choose? Well, my guilty confession is I haven't seen either of the Paddington movies because I don't like joy. Um, but knowing knowing what I do about um, the visual artist on Twitter that keeps adding Paddington to a different movie still um, every day until he forgets or gets bored... I would say uh, Adam to the New Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That was like the, uh, you know, that was the instigator for that. Blend blend those two memes and bring them together. And it's Paddington and Leatherface. Let's go. I'm going to say a sitcom scenario like Community where someone like Joel McCarroll's character or God forbid Chevy Chase's character when he was still on Community has to get a talking to from Paddington multiple times. Mm. I, I think that's the dynamic I would add Paddington to for me could be like one of those memes remember where they're like if you had to show that you would replace everyone but the main character with a muppet or just the main character with a muppet just take a show and swap out the main character for paddington see how it goes i'm gonna say 24 because we were just talking about keep settling off camera so 24 but paddington plays uh plays jack bauer i got it 
I was going to say Paddington's like the guy on the computer or something or something of that nature. And it's just in Kiefer's ear the whole time, just talking him through missions, trying to either. It's down. either one. It's either Kiefer is Paddington or literally every other character. You got Paddington terrorists, Paddington psychops folks. It's great. That's that's a that's a can of worms that we can open on another day. All right. We have another question from this one comes from Nathaniel. Thank you, Nathaniel. What's a dormant movie? or television series that you would like to see updated, continued, or rebooted? This is easy. The Prophecy. I mean, I hopefully I don't need to explain this to anybody else, and it did have a pretty good run, and even I haven't gotten all the way to the end of the line with it. But, um, yeah, take a... Uh, take a give it a, a contemporary director uh, a crack at the Prophecy franchise. Get some war between the angels and heaven... And you know, devil, creepy, goth shit on planet Earth. I think that I think that could be a really fun goth kind of film. And I think we're probably getting into far enough along into the nostalgia cycle where goth will become in vogue again. Uh, Mid '90s feels about right, so 30 years out. So yeah, let's do a prophecy. How about you? I think I'm gonna go more selfish because there are I think there are properties that deserve it more. But for me, I, I've really been craving another journey back into a uh, cabin into the woods territory. Mm. And I, like, I know a sequel is kind of teased for a little bit and we saw the, the wipeable board. We saw the, the monsters and the cages and all that stuff. So like, we know there are so many scenarios going on at so many times. And I'm not even saying we just have to do the same thing again with different monsters, but something that explores the, the corporation more explores more of that universe, I think would really be a venture that sh- I would number one, I'd be willing to take and. You know, I think Cabin in the Woods itself has amassed enough fan base where that would be a pretty viable sequel to go out there with. And it has a nice, it feels appropriate for you to say that on this particular episode too. Nice bit of parallel connections there between the monster project and Cabin in the Woods. Lots of monsters, lots of cameras. I dig it. Maybe they're locked in as the monsters in the cages. Who knows? Crossovers are forever. Uh, Bear this in mind for when it becomes Matt Donato, Hollywood producer. All right. Thank you again for listening. We're going to get right back to the show. So let's go. All right. Welcome back. Today on the show, we are talking about The Monster Project. And let me tell you a little bit about the film, sort of an expectation setting here. So the Monster Project is a 2017 found footage horror film directed by Victor, I'm going to say Mathau, Walter Mathau, seems right to me, Victor Mathau. In the film, a group of young filmmakers, including a YouTube influencer, an aspiring director, and a recovering drug addict, put out a casting call on Craigslist in order to interview real monsters in Los Angeles, uh, movies about Los Angeles. What a coincidence. The three people who answer the call claim to be a vampire, a demon, and a skinwalker or werewolf. But as the night goes on, the group learns that their claims to the supernatural may not be as far-fetched as they thought. So this began life. This is actually a very, very early Kickstarter film. This began life as a Kickstarter movie way back in March of 2013. It successfully raised $20,000 in April of that year, but it would actually take them four years for the cast and crew to finish the project. It became fully wrapped in January 2017, was sold and distributed shortly thereafter, And while it probably does not get as much um, note as the Zach Braff movies of the world, uh, this is a Kickstarter movie success story from a time when that was still something that would make the front page of Wired Magazine or Polygon, if Polygon was even around. I don't know when it started. Those kind of things. And that makes it a film 
that is going to have a very fun legacy to talk about on the show. So let's start, uh, Devon, with you. You talked about this being something you wanted to do even before you thought you were going to be able to do it. What makes this uh, a movie that kind of sticks with you and endures for so long? Man, so I love found footage movies quite a bit. Um, it's definitely one of my favorite subgenres. And um, it started off because I used to, for one of the websites I used to write for, I did a editorial every month called Stoner's Corner where I would highlight a movie that would be enhanced if you were to indulge in, um, in, the, in the substances. And um, this was one of those movies. Um, I just kind of sought it out. And, um, in, you know, why it was kind of hard for me to find a movie um, to, like, for this podcast and me again with, like, not to, like, sound like I, like, that I don't watch, quote-unquote, bad movies, but I don't watch as many, like, you know, smaller smaller movies as i should like you know i'm i'm up to date on indies and stuff but like not like the like super indies kind of like this you know and uh, found footage is always a subgenre that i'll take a chance on in those circumstances because like you know like so like there there's so much creativity that can go into a found footage movie and you know it kind of sucks we you know it was very saturated for a hot minute so it was kind of hard to like sift through it um, but now that's kind of calmed down a little bit. Um, we kind of get a more steady stream of really interesting found footage movies and um, uh, using it in more creative ways than when they were kind of popular more in the early 2010s of just kind of you know, shake the camera a little bit. Let's do this. And like, you know, like there's a lot more creativity in the reasons and um, interweaving it into the story more um, than than previously. So um, this one's um, just really fun. It takes a very silly premise and like, yeah, the writing and acting isn't the greatest. But one thing that I do want from a found footage movie is like there has to be a very steep escalation. Like, you know, because found footage movies, you kind of ground the film a little bit um, as if it's a little bit more real, which means if you're going to do that. I want this movie to just go batshit crazy in the third act. Mm. And boy, does this movie do that. It gives us everything in this finale. And I absolutely love its audacity for that. And uh, it's very creative for, for the budget. We get some really good effects in there for um, some of these monster designs and some of these set pieces. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those ones that's like, you'll be almost wanting to kind of give up maybe by, by your 35 minutes in. You're like, uh, this movie's kind of, mm. but then once it gets going, you're, you're happy you stayed on board. Yeah. Um, we'll come, we'll come back to that, that 35, <laughs> 40 minute mark because gosh, that rang true. Denial, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, to hold you back anymore. I want to let you gush. So gush away, my friend. Yeah. I mean, this for me is uh, not to repeat anything Devon said, cause I agree with everything in that. Uh, he nailed it. And I also, too, am a uh, found footage fan. It is a subgenre that is near and dear to me. And what I like about found footage um, is more the sense of you can do these grounded stories and you can really bring the audience like face to face with fear. That's the thing that I always keep going back to is like I, I really think found footage when it is done correct is some of the scariest uh, ways of bringing found footage. Sorry, bring horror to audiences. So like when you have a really good found footage movie that can bring you face to face with the devil and like bring you face to face with whatever is trying to happen. Like you can't look away from that. Like there's no, the camera doesn't give you any kind of break from the horror. And I think 
the monster project does that pretty well. Also, it does something a little more unprecedented because if we look back on the Blair Witch, but paranormal activity, like the, the films that started the kind of um, found footage kickoff where everyone was trying to copy it, they saw ghost stories and they saw how easy it was to do little cheap paranormal effects. Mm-hmm. And those were the, like the copycats over and over every cheap mm-hmm. uh, found footage movie that came after that. They were trying to do the, Oh, like, we don't actually have a monster here. We just have a guy off camera, like shutting some doors and like opening some windows. But the monster project is like, no, we're going to give you a creature feature, but we're going to do it in found footage, which again is like, you know, Cloverfield pulled it off, but Cloverfield was a massive movie that was able to like use millions and millions of dollars to create a, a massive New York kaiju film and found footage. And like the monster project saying, no, we're going to do a creature feature. We're going to bring all the monsters in that uh, you mentioned Monogle, and we're going to do it in a way that a hundred percent feels like you're walking through a Halloween Horror Nights maze or like some kind of mm-hmm. like entertainment attraction maze, but it's never cheap and it's never done in a way that feels like you're not in the moment. Like you feel locked in with these monsters in the monster project. So I just, it, it's like this little miracle of a movie. That's barely what $200,000, $250,000 I think is the budget, mm-hmm. but it plays as well as so many multi-million dollar films. I'm, like, I'm not going to say Cloverfield, but you know, some of those mid-tier indie final footage films that get talked about so much. I think the monster project like stands right next to them, like so proudly, like Devon said that the effects, like the, the costumes and the way the monsters look, the creature design is great. So it like so little money, but it plays like quadruple at like quintuple to the size. Yeah. And the um, special effects were done by a noted uh, Hollywood special effects artist, Jim Benke, who has worked on films like the craft and lady in the water. He worked on the, mm. the men in black movies, cut his teeth, on the original um, Swamp Thing television series, not the movie, but the television series. So in interviews, Mathau says, the director, Victor Mathau says that the reason why they have a film is because the Kickstarter had been up for six months and Jim Benke was like, hey, I like what you're working with. Let me get involved. And suddenly that $20,000 in Kickstarted funds turned into accredited, but it it doesn't have a a citation on Wikipedia, but $250,000 is a final budget. And yeah, I mean, it's one of the, when you have somebody you know, do I wish that 80s and 90s special effects artists would never go backwards in terms of budget? Yeah, I'd love to see them continue to go upwards in terms of trajectory. But bringing somebody to the table who knows how to do this on a grand scope and scale does make a pretty big difference for the mm-hmm. way these creatures look. I mean, it's wild for how small of a budget that this movie has. Like, this has a top three, like, werewolf for me um, in mm-hmm. in this film, Skinwalker. Like, the the stages that we get from it too like it's not like you know we just get like kind of flashes of it or flashes of any of the designs this movie isn't afraid to show you you know what it's working with like it's not trying to do like you know um you know keep it off camera and like do it only in like distances and shadows like no they're putting the monsters in our face and like really showing off the work and it's incredible and I think it also gets away with it a little more than other films because it's doing the night vision mode for a lot of the chaotic mm-hmm. action once, you know, for anyone listening, if you have not seen the film yet, there is a lead up that Monogle describes. And finally, the crew gets to the house, the monsters come in as interview subjects, and they all get locked in together. And like the the, sec- the third act, plus a little bit of the second act is just these monsters hunting the crew throughout this house and they are isolated and they can't get out. So like, it just becomes a hunt and chase film between a skinwalker 
like a J horror demon and a vampire tattoo artist. And the crew is just running scared the whole time, but it isn't a night vision. So like you do get the green overlay, but that overlay mm-hmm. makes those effects kind of look a little better because you're not noticing all these little intricate details and mm-hmm. the film uses its budget and it knows it doesn't have the budget to pull off some really kind of like daylight effects, but they use found footage like in such a clever way that you don't need it. Like you've used found footage in a way that sells the exact movie you're trying to sell and it covers up quote unquote like blemishes, I guess to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I have um, from from my writing, I've never been a, much of an academic writer. Um, I've always kind of you know, done the more fun articles and kind of silly stuff and like kind of stretches. But my, my one claim to fame that makes me do feel a little academic is, um, Dr. Rebecca McKendry on, um, uh, she has a podcast as well, but she teaches uh, classes out here in California and Mm -hmm. used one of my articles in her found footage, uh, section. Cause I wrote a article, um, about like the reasons to use found footage, like pretty much broke it down as like, you know, using it for authenticity, amplifying the fear, giving a sense of urgency and is using the found footage like purposeful and like, does it add like style to the film? Like those like five main things. And it's like, kind of go down those, that list, like um, the monster project checks off like all those things. Cause it's using the, the medium like for what it's intended for to like, you know, to have this very specific style and purpose on like, why is somebody filming this to begin with? Is there somebody that's going to put this footage together later? And why would they do mm-hmm. that? And who's going to be watching it? Um, you kind of meant you guys kind of mentioned some of this. And um, I was listening to the Poughkeepsie tapes episode earlier. And, um, you know, if you have all those things, then like, you know, you're, you're using the medium like purposefully. And uh, I mean, especially with like, you know, the, the sense of urgency in this movie, like once the chase gets going, like you said, like it feels just like every time they like escape one thing, they look to one door and then the other monsters there. And then it's like, okay, we beat this monster. Let's get out of here. But, oh, we got to go back in because we left Jamal in there and we got to go back for Jamal. So it's like all these reasons that keep them just running around this house, Scooby-Doo style, um, just makes sense. So I let me ask Monagle very quickly, because you, you have made it known already that the first 40 ish minutes uh, you're ready to abandon. Does <laughs> the second half kind of pull you back in in a way that makes you happy that you stayed? First, let me say that I was I was I was mad <laughs> for about 35 <laughs> minutes of this movie, which is and this is not the first time that this has happened on no, the show. No, no, no. This has become like a weird reoccurring thing is like I think Donato, I think you like payoff movies. And so I think a lot of the movies where you're like oh, this is great. Like it's backloaded, not frontloaded. And I tend to be the opposite. I tend to, to prefer frontloaded film. So you were like, oh, I love this movie. I'm so glad Devon picked it. And I was watching it. I was like, God damn it, Donato. Not again. <laughs> you picked another thing that I, and then and because the first bit of it, it's like, I was telling my wife, it, I got like MTV undressed vibes from a lot of it. It's just sort of like, not great character romance triangle stuff. And you begin to, when I say not great, you really begin to appreciate what these actors are bringing to the table. Once the shit hits the fan, Um, they're very good at sort of the physical component of acting. They're very good at at maintaining fear and being interesting and engaging. So I actually came around on the cast quite a bit, but that first little, like, here's how we all got here bit was excruciating for me. And then, you know, to the, to uh, the points that both of you have made, 
the turning point was when they started doing the scary stuff, but they didn't do it off camera. When they were basically like, here's a vampire attack. Here's our werewolf attack. It's happening directly point blank in front of the camera. We're not cutting away. We're not hiding. There's nobody with a, you know, fishing wire in the corner of the room. That's just like pulling stuff. We're all, we're like, we're going to live and die by how well you go with this. And it's a very action. There's like shades of the, the highest compliment I could pay. Um, some of the way that this is put together, some of the, the, uh, stunts and fight choreography and, and the way this thing came together, there's shades of aliens. There's shades of the colonial Marines down in the trenches with their, you know, their little webcams is they're getting picked off one by one. There are times where it has that same sort of clarity and momentum and sense of direction. And yeah, that got me in the end. It's, um, and of course the end end, which we'll talk about in a little bit here, like who, <laughs> who, who doesn't gravitate towards a kicker like that? And that's what I'm saying. Like it has to, cause I'm not a payoff person typically either. Like I'm not usually a big slow burn person, but if I'm going to do it, the, the, the payoff has to be proportional. So like you said, like we have like 30 minutes of like, okay, we're doing a lot of character stuff and it's kind of just like, we're doing things like, okay, if it's going to be that slow, then that means you have to go that much bigger. <laughs> and that's actually a great point. And this is like me and Monogle argue a lot, actually um, talking about like payoffs and I, I do need that payoff to be exactly as long as your buildup was. And I mm -hmm. think that's where like Monogle and I differ because something like St. Maud <laughs> and like just going right out with St. Maud and just cool. It's like it's, it's a movie that I still like, do not get me wrong. But when your payoff is two seconds at the end <laughs> of a movie, like that literally you can blink and miss like that is not proportional to what you have given me before that. Like if you're going to slow burn me just like the monster project does like, okay slow burn me for 40 minutes and then unleash unholy hell for 40 minutes like they literally do that so like they they know that what you're waiting around for and they know what you're there to see and, and again monologues yeah. that's a great point they don't do it off camera they do it in your face and if we're going to compare things to like i really bring up uh, afflicted the vampire movie um that's another like first person but they kind of get more action friendly and they go into like the hardcore henry realm so you get these sequences i think like too, like hardcore henry where the vampire jumps on one of the characters and they smash through at least like one or two floors. Mm -hmm. Like the wood boards are just rotted. <laughs> yeah, so they, they just do. smash through it. And like, it's a great effect where it does look like they're just falling through the house on top of one another, just like toppling and then crashing down and still fighting. And that is something again, that does not look like it should be in a 200,000, $250,000 movie. Like that is a top tier effect. That is a top tier stunt choreography kind of thing. And like they pull it off and it looks perfect. Like there's, there's no, there's no blemishes on that one. Like, especially like it's crazy. Oh, I was just saying like, yeah, the way they use the location is uh, really impressive. Like whoever found this house that I'm assuming they just like got permission to just like destroy the shit out of um, kudos to them uh, because like they're the real MVP of this movie. <laughs> yeah. And I think that sense of like having a space like that works really well for the film because you know, it's weird. I had um, I had Deadstream bouncing around in the back of my head while I was watching it because Donato and I just saw that at South by it's going to come out this year, hopefully at some point. Shutter, it's coming out in Shutter yep. not too long. People watch it; it's great. Um, I had that bouncing around in my head a little bit in terms of the way they use the indoor stuff. But the scene that sold me on this movie was actually the birthday party for Evan that they have at the beginning of the movie, which is just sort of like you're like, oh, okay, th thank you. Yep, oh, oh French mm -hmm. friendship is tough, right? I got you there. <laughs> They pay that off by him having kind of like an out of body ghost experience when he's in the haunted house. Yeah, and yeah. the way that they did the scares in that with like the crowd that is frozen and then looking and then gone, it's such easy in camera stuff, but it's like, 
it requires a degree of we're going to get this right, like commitment to the bit in order to make it work. And they had so many of those little moments in that inner ghost sequence that like that was that's what sold me on the movie. When they did that haunting sequence at the reliving, making him relive his birthday party where the ghost is like whispering at him. It had strong, strong video game logic, right? Like that was a video, a sequence from a video mm-hmm. game where you're playing something and like you hear, it's like a, the darkness where the character's like making you relive something and whispering in your ear. It was inventive and it was dynamic and it was just good. And after that point, I was like, all right, movie, the worst you're going to get from me is a mixed review because I'm, I, you, you've really knocked it out of the park with this. Yeah, you can you can totally feel the effort that was that was put in. Like you know, the, a lot of the times, you know, I think that's what found footage gets a bad rap. Is you know, they assume that people made it found footage because you know, out of necessity or because they thought it would be easy, they thought it'd be cheap, um, and like that they're not gonna like really put the effort in. But like, I, you definitely don't see that with this movie like at all. Like you you feel the that they put in the effort to be like, okay, let's switch up the scares. Like let's use this entire location, like to the most that we can, like, and mm-hmm. even, you know, doing that with the dream sequence that they probably filmed, you know, they probably filmed that dream sequence right after they filmed the party sequence to like save time and save setups, you know? So it's like the, you, you know that they are putting so much effort behind it. And, and to your point to that, I have seen, you know, I'm sure we've all seen so many, so many like you know direct to streaming or direct to whatever uh found footage films that do exactly what you're saying they don't put the effort in they just they go oh good we have a camera and we have a cheap way to fool people into thinking this is like a a, another paranormal activity uh and like you know for them to embrace the creature feature aspect of it and to really like dare themselves to go full Mm -hmm. full into it and dare themselves to be like no we're showing everything uh i think of a film like there's this movie called like tape 407. I think it was renamed and released, but it's literally about a, a flight that land like crash lands and there's a velociraptor hunting them. Like there's no logic behind it, but like <laughs> sure. they tried to do a found footage velociraptor film. And the only thing they did was like build half of a velociraptor's tail that they just like wave like onto the camera. And then someone would just get pulled off camera and that it was just over and over. And that's how they just killed everybody. And it's like, that's what you usually get. Like, that's the kind of like, that's what I'm expecting from a, from a monster project. Like I'm, I, I've been so conditioned to think that it is a filmmaker taking the easy way out that when I see a monster project and I see something that goes, that's right. There are still people that care about this and there are still yeah. people out there that can pull this off. And like, it just washes over. Like it's such a comforting feeling. And like, that's why like, I just, I, I loved living in that world as much as like, that's weird to say, like, I like being trapped in there. Cause like, it's confined and it's weird and it's gonzo kind of horror kitchen sink shit. So like, yeah, all for that. Yeah. I, I love that. Like it, and I love that, especially with the premise of this too, that it's like, okay, there's going to be three monsters in this. How much of them are we even going to actually see throughout this? And it's like, I like that it wasn't like formulaic either. I thought it was going to be like mm-hmm. the way that they did, like, you know, they were doing the interviews and they just like kind of did one by one, these like little interview sections. And I thought that's how it was going to be for like the the set pieces as well. I figured like each one was going to get like one set piece and then just get killed and kind of go to the next. But like the way that it's like, no, like we get multiple set pieces from like each monster where they kind of like keep going back and forth. Like, you know, they'll ditch the skinwalker for a minute, but then now it's like, oh, we're battling the vampire and the demon is also doing shit. And then like, 
um and they like kind of go back and forth and like it, it just like puts this like madcap on it and then plus like you know we get to the end of the movie and like there was a cult that was boarding them in the house too so it's like there's mm-hmm. even a reason on why they like couldn't leave the house to begin with either so it's like again they could have been formulaic with it but like the the way that they just like kept the pace going and like that haunted house aspect of like okay who's around the corner next is just so effective even just one more before we get to the ending just one little sequence uh where devin the main character goes to a birthday party that we had mentioned before and he sees his ex for the first time and like they don't neither of them have any reason to have a camera but there (laughs) there needs to be a way for them to have a little like spat off in the corner by themselves and the way they get around that is because well devin's ex is like going to give a camera as a present a GoPro basically uh, mm-hmm. and she turns it on and it's on to give to the person because she wanted to record the reaction but first she has to go have this conversation and it's just a small little detail that seems insignificant but then again you watch so many of these other like comparative uh in like micro budget found footage films and they don't even go out of their way to like reason why the camera would be in some places mm-hmm. or even sorry not even micro budget like look at paranormal activity next of kin like it hates being a found footage horror film like it doesn't yeah. want to be but it belabors itself with the rules of being one. So like you have these sequences where the camera is having like an out of body experience, looking at the person recording. And you're like, that, that doesn't make sense. This is a found footage horror film. You've completely just negated the rules you've built. So like the fact that the monster, uh, wow, monster squad, (laughs) the monster project would take that little note and just be like, I know it's weird, but we just have to have a reason for this camera to be on. And they do. And like, guess what? Like it's, it's logical. It makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, and you're talking about the little moments. One of the the favorite little moments in the movie is there's a scene where the main character is being dragged away from a werewolf and he's dragged down the hall and around a corner and they close the door and it's a seven second, it's an eight second shot. It's not like it's a tracking shot. They're not super calling attention to itself. But in the world of found footage, a seven second shot is an incredibly long shot. That would be four different. That would be like shot and then around the corner shot. Like the fact that they, they again, they took the time to do all of that in one take and and actually get something that is meant to be just like an important little scene, not not a flashy scene, but just something visually it, that information is best shown as one take. It's interesting. And, and it goes to show, you know, looking around at uh, Victor Matthau's career, one of the things he did after this is he made a series of VR horror films, 360 like experiential horror mm. films. So there, no part of this movie makes that a surprise to me at all. This is a, this is a filmmaker who is already thinking about every perspective every part of the filmmaking experience and the leap to 360 makes complete sense for me i love i love that they the detail of they made the skinwalker he is a cop so he has a body cam on him so that way we can get these pov werewolves like shots like just that little detail so we could have that like that's 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 what we need yeah well i want to talk about the ending because you know Gang, gang, cult <laughs> shit. Shout out to Anya Stanley. Um, this The ending of this film caught me by surprise in two different ways. It caught me by surprise by how it treats its characters. Um, not unfavorably. I liked it. And it caught me by surprise with this sort of uh, Lovecraftian cult that kind of came out of a little bit out of left field, but just sort of, again, Devon, you've talked about how this just goes bigger and bigger and bigger. Like really, it blows the top off the movie in the last little bit. So Devon, I want to—I kind of want to start with you. Um, reactions to to the ending and how it 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 all comes together, all these different experiences, all these character deaths, the big culmination, how that works for you. 
Oh man, I I remember the first time watching it. Um, whenever I was like prepping to write an article about it, like I I, I watched it like early in the morning. So I mean, I was like kind of half sleep, but I was like you know that in bed watch. And then like I mean by the by the time this hit, like I mean I was ready to like go out and like run five miles after this movie. Like it like injected like so much energy into me. I was so excited that it goes into this, you know that the because the the filmmaker you know he's a he's secretly in some cult shit. And I love that, you know, there's a there's a funny line earlier in the movie, like when they're pulling up to a location and the guy explaining it was like explaining why he has cameras, which, again, explaining cameras in the movie. Gotta love and it. he's like, oh, you know, kids breaking in, having sex, shooting up, sacrificing animals. And then they're like, wait, what? Sacrificing animals? He's like, oh, yeah, some some cult stuff, like whatever. And he like it, it's, you know, it, it buried in this funny line. And then you just like kind of think it's like a weird throwaway thing. Like, oh, this is weird. And then it's like, of course, like the caretaker is like in on the cult as well. They're, they were the ones, like, because they, they call attention to the the hammering in the background, but nobody questions what it is. Like, like what's that sound like? It sounds like hammering, but nobody knows what's going on, that the the cult was, um you know, boarding them in. So it's, like, all these, like, little things, like, because if you're going to have a twist like that, like, uh, it's, the twist has to be fun, but then also, like, whenever I rewatched it this time, and, like, knowing the twist, like, is the movie still fun? And it is, because it's, like, you see all these, like, little things and like, I mean, you really kind of just like all the characters look a little bit more dumb in hindsight because they're like, man, <laughs> Devin is a shady dude. Like he has no production value on this like documentary he's making. Like they brought two lights and a camera to this thing and you're like, you're still buying in. Like it, this dude was obviously setting some shit up. So it's like on on the hindsight, it just like kind of makes those actions like look a little bit funnier on the characters, but like I was here for it when he's yelling at God at, at the ceiling during his cult ceremony. I was, I was in. I love that. Donato ending for you. Yeah, no, it sells in the same way. Uh, I, I also like the way it sells uh, Devin's actions, you know, prior to there are moments where you kind of go like, all right, why, why is everyone kind of just going along with him? And he's like being really kind of like, Oh, so, like he just brushes off the fact that they're, nothing's gonna happen it's just over and over again like who cares monsters aren't real like it, it's just an overplaying of the fact that like no we know we're gonna get to a scene where there are monsters and they are real so there's a little bit of fuzzy logic in the beginning but what the ending does is it basically makes it a plot device like that is a plot device of devon saying yeah no we're gonna or sorry like i'm gonna at devon saying i'm gonna get these people into a house and they're gonna be my sacrifices and everything that i need um and, and just giving him that motivation at the end and like just showing kind of who he really is. It just helps the beginning of the film. It just helps the beginning of the film in the way it's structured and all things about that. So like, I, I think it's a clever ending more than just heaping on some occult shit at the end to get some demons going and to get some summoning going. And, and again, there's a pretty brutal death scene where like they drain somebody's blood and all of that is very visual and very visceral and like real but then it, the work it does to the prior stuff too in the film, I think it just is smart. It's just smart storytelling. And once again, found footage isn't really known for that kind of stuff. So when you do wrap things up in a way that ties earlier, you know, little plot de- plot developments together in a way that makes sense. Eh, no, I'm, I'm in on it. Yeah. And the only thing I'll add to that is that if you're going to, if you're going to kill your characters, which a lot of horror films do, um, it needs to, at least for me, it needs to not feel overly cruel, right? Like the, you know, not killing people for the sake of killing people because you think your audience is secretly rooting for the bad guys, which to be fair, a lot of horror audiences are. 
Um, but it also needs to to have some sort of weight within the context of the film as well. And I think this movie does both of those things. It, it, those are very, very heavy deaths, um, especially the death of, um, why am I blanking on her name? Not Maureen, not Maudlin. Um, Muriel. Muriel, thank you. The death of Muriel is a, is a heavy death, the death of the main character, a heavy death. Um, but it works within the context of the film. It doesn't seem overly cruel. This is not an Eli Roth movie. And it it doesn't, it also doesn't, by giving it a, a cult thing at the end, it doesn't come across overly nihilistic, which a lot of horror can sometimes do. I think it's just, it's fun. It's good stakes. Um, we're screwed because, you know, another YouTube influencer has become God. And I guess that's just what we have to deal with going forward. Yeah. It, it makes it feel like it's like out of their control, you know, like, mm-hmm. it, like if, it, if you end it that way, that's like, okay, no matter what this character did, it was going to end this way. It does kind of lessen the blow a little bit, mm-hmm. I guess. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I really, I really love that they went for it. And, um, my, I love, cause the, the guy that played Devin, like his acting throughout the like first half is like kind of whatever. And then like you notice, when you go back and rewatch this, you notice like one shit's kind of going down. He's not really saying much. He's just like kind of doing things. He's running around with people, but he's not really saying much. But then like when he like kind of flips his performance and um, Brian is like mad at him, he's like, you killed him, you killed him. And he, he looks at his hands plainly and goes, do you see any blood on my hands? Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, you want me back, man. <laughs> It's a good, it is a good bad guy performance in the end, for sure. The context, the context of just what it gives after we learn who he is and everything before that. It just, it's a nice little kiss of like, this all makes sense now. It just all yep. makes perfect sense. And it's nice to know. And also like moment of weakness, I'll just be like, yeah, no, the vampire super attractive. So like I was always in on this movie. I was just <laughs> in this movie in the beginning. That's my type, whatever. You like wide eyes and tattoos. Absolutely. <laughs> I decided uh, the the perfect a triple feature and if you love this movie because uh, the two movies that this gives me shades of is one is grave encounters which is yes. one of my all-time favorite movies Great um, movie. very much feels the same except you know i think minahan's a little bit more of a clever writer than methow methow here um but that one again like kind of similar the pacing the isolated location like it just uh kind of really works and then a more recent one that this uh kind of has shades of is uh the cleansing hour um the one that was like found footage via live stream where they're like having like a live stream exorcism and uh along with the twist and everything it definitely like goes to some places so like make for a very fun found footage triple feature if you need a found footage movie night yeah and oh, yeah. to what monogle said before too deadstream like when y'all can see deadstream when it comes out in shutter that's going to be one that definitely plays with uh monster project and yeah i'm I, excited I, for that one I'd also, I'd also put uh, Adam Green's Digging Up the Marrow, or Digging the Marrow, whatever that title is. It's just another freaky little uh, creature feature found footage flick, and the way that it plays, I think, does play kind of with uh, the Monster Project as well. So there's some more recommendations right there if you want to want to throw together a nice little found footage day. No shortage of found footage recommendations out there. Well, that brings us to the last question of the podcast, the one we always end with, um, which is the legacy of this movie going forward. So right now you can stream this movie for free on Tubi, only the greatest of all streaming platforms. I will go to my grave thinking that until they change their pricing structure or their acquisition model, in which case I'll abandon them. But for now, best streaming platform out there. You can watch it for free with uh, just a few brief commercial introductions. It's weird to watch, as always, like a laundry detergent ad in the middle of this movie, but yeah, whatever. (laughs) Um, 
But, you know, this is there is a sequel that's theoretically in the works. Uh, the director is taught, he said in 2020, um, quote, that they are bringing certain cast members back and they're going to be introducing new monsters and that they hope to be working on it soon. I take any announcements made in 2020 with a huge fucking grain of salt, but at least it was on someone's radar mm-hmm. not that long ago. So legacy of this film where fans are going to find it, where it deserves to be remembered. Devon, let's uh, let's start with you. Do you think this this film is going to find its audience to the scope and scale that clearly we think it should? Um, I mean, I don't think that this movie is going to become like a cult classic or anything, but I definitely, because um, I've seen it over the years kind of pop up on more found footage lists and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think it'll be the ones that like, you know, if you are a found footage person, um, it, that it will find its way to your eyeballs at some point. But I don't think this is going to be like a, uh, a cult classic that people are like, you know, very dedicated to and like clamoring uh, more for. But I mean, I would I would take a, sing, uh, a sequel for this, like, you know, maybe bring uh, Brian back as a ghost in the next one. He's like haunting the house or something. Our, uh, our boy uh, Toby Hemingway from The Covenant. Shout out to him. <laughs> I like it. Donato, what do you think? Yeah, this is a tough one because, uh, I mean, it was distributed by Epic Pictures, so like it had a decent enough sized uh, distributor, I think, that should have gotten, you know, the eyes on it that it might have deserved. Um, I, I've seen it pop up on Amazon Prime. Like, it's funny because I've written about this throughout the years a few times just on streaming lists and like saying, hey, you can watch this now on Amazon Prime. So like I'd throw it on there and then all of a sudden it's like, hey, you can now watch this on like Hulu really quickly or something yeah. like that. Like, it's, so it's been around on a few different platforms. I think I go back to the idea that it might need a uh, shutter bump eventually because I feel like mm, this is really like yeah, a shutter yeah. crowd. And if you can kind of get the right people watching this, maybe there can be some kind of readdress. Also, maybe down the line, I don't know, like one of those uh, distributors or, you know, maybe we talk about the vinegar syndromes and stuff like that. Maybe it gets a Blu-ray release down the line. That's uh, another special edition. Like, hey, you missed this little thing that was pretty cool out there. But I think at the moment, like, you know, everyone who's kind of seen it or would really enjoy it has seen it. And it just needs to keep plugging away on the streamers. I I think that's the only way to do it. Yeah, we've talked we've we've talked about a lot of found footage because we have a lot of people that have guested on the show that love found footage. And I think I think that that feels right to me. Um, This is perfect fodder for friend of the show, Megan Navarro's uh, stay home, watch horror listicles things of that nature right like really good highly curated lists of stuff that aren't just the titles you've seen um and you know eventually maybe it'll find its way onto bigger and better lists and at that point Mm -hmm. maybe the audience will grow a little bit for it but i think in terms of a niche 10 found footage films you haven't seen is is a pretty good place for this to be because it should be on all of them i think Yeah. yeah totally fair All right. Well, that is our episode on the Monster Project, or as Donato kept trying to call it, the Monster Squad. It was one. Um, Devon, I want to say thank you so much for joining us on the show. I want to give you an opportunity to not only promote your podcast, but um, you know, socials, websites, things that you're maintaining. So, if people want to learn more about their about your show, or if they think that our show is just a, a a little too straight edge and would like to take a walk on the wild side, what's the best place to go online to uh, to to hear what you're doing? Yeah, if you want to come get weird with us at the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club, we are on all platforms that you listen to podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bloody Blunt's Pod. We post new episodes every Tuesday. We just wrapped up uh, covering the Slumber Party Massacre franchise, which was a lot of fun, and now we yeah. are hopping into alien territory, and um, we're going to talk uh, some alien horror movies, which will be super fun. 
And uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore daddy disco. I, you know, there on Twitter talking movies and uh, on Instagram, you can see some of the video things I do. I, uh, I film uh, some live performances and music videos with some friends and things like that. So yeah, follow me there. Awesome. Donato, promote thyself, friend. As always, you can find me, Matt Donato, at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram. You will see my writing. I follow my live stream with Perry every Friday on Perry Nemiroff's YouTube channel. Check out Certified Forgotten. We do cool stuff. And yeah, as always, just uh, I will be posting what I do there. And if you like it, click on it. Yay. <laughs> That's we got to get you better at selling yourself, friend, yeah, um, especially with some of the bylines you've gotten recently. As for myself, you can follow me on Twitter at Matt Monagle. Like Donato said, that's where I post all of my writing, um, whether that's film criticism, uh, tabletop criticism, which is my new baby. I'm having a lot of fun doing that. You can also definitely go check out our website, certifiedforgotten.com. little plug related to this show, if you read interviews with Victor Mathau, he talks a lot about how The Hamiltons was a film that influenced him, which is a a movie that we just featured. We just had a writer pitch us and write about the Hamiltons as a vampire movie. Um, and I think that, that if you're interested in what those connections might be, that's a really good place to go is visit certifiedforgotten.com and check out that article. It's still on our, our front page. And other than that, yes, if you liked what you listened to today, please leave us a review, a comment, a like, something to that effect. Uh, go over to Bloody Blunts, leave some reviews. Like this is what you're going to get there too. So definitely five-star reviews all around. I think that's just the order of the day for everyone. And yeah, thank you for listening. Devon, it's been a real pleasure. So great to have you on the show. And um, now that we've gotten one great movie out of your system, we'll have to have you come back and bring something else. Oh, Matt and Matt, the pleasure has been <laughs> all mine. Thank you so much. Of course. And Donato is going to bring us out in our weird, organic, accustomed fashion. It's the Monster Project, not the Monster Squad. <laughs> uh, that's great. That's a footnote. <laughs>